Welcome to the Reasoned Hope Podcast. In this podcast, we explore the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith and seek to show why the central hope found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. I hope that today's episode is both an encouragement and a challenge to you, whether you are a believer or a skeptic. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Reasoned Hope Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about an element of Christian doctrine, which is called the Incarnation. And it is the one of the central events of history from a Christian perspective. And that around Christmas time, we celebrate. And many people singing Christmas carols, even if they're not Christians, are acknowledging and singing about this aspect of Christian theology uh, called the Incarnation. So I thought it was appropriate that being around Christmas time that I talk about what the Incarnation is, how best to understand it, and why it matters. Why the Incarnation represents the hope of Christianity. So the Incarnation expresses the purpose of Christmas, that Jesus Christ uh, the Son of God, came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 20, verse 28, he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Um, he's expressing there the fact that he came to provide a way for people, sinful people, to be forgiven for their sins. Uh, before God, that that he would be the ransom for many people, would pay the sin debt that we owe. In the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that he would be the perfect sacrifice and the one who, by his sacrifice, by his death, by his resurrection, would take away the sins of the world. Um, that he would provide a way for people to be forgiven. So that's why Jesus came, to, to make a way. Um, that's all over the New Testament. The basic concept of the Incarnation is, and we'll, we'll get into more of what uh, a definition of the Incarnation would be, how best to understand it as we go through this episode, but a basic concept of the Incarnation is that God has become man, that, that God has taken on human flesh, taken on a human nature, and walked among us. This is the unique thing about Christianity, that there's, 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 no, there's no other faith that has a concept of incarnation like the Christian understanding that God has entered into human history, taken on a human nature, and walked among, walked among us, walked among sinful people. I like this way that I've heard it put, in the Incarnation, we see that the cries of a broken world have actually been heard. That we all know that something is terribly wrong with this world. And if you're going to be a thoughtful person about what you believe, then you need to acknowledge that, that at least something is off about the world. A lot of, there's a lot of brokenness, a lot of evil things happen, a lot of suffering. And people are... Are, are looking for a source of hope. They're looking for some way to deal with the difficulties 
of life and, and, and to find ultimate hope, to find meaning. And in the incarnation, we see that God himself has not left the world broken. He's not left the world without hope, that the cries of a broken world have actually been heard, and that Jesus is God with us. As the Bible talks about, Emmanuel means God with us, that God is with us in Jesus Christ. So that is overall what the incarnation is about. That's the hope that it expresses. So I just want to look at a few passages in the Bible that that speak about the incarnation. And I want to make several points. And the first one would be the incarnation is a central doctrine of the Christian faith, the central place of the incarnation in Christianity. And the first place I want to go is the Gospel of John. It's in chapter 1, and it's really the verses that are found from uh, 1 to 14. I won't read all of this, but I'll read part of it, just to give you an, an idea of, um, of how John begins his gospel and how it's it's essential to see Jesus as God incarnate, God become man, and why this is important. So uh, John chapter 1 starts this way, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Now, that's a very rich passage, and there is so much there that we could talk about. But I just want to focus on a few things. One is that it's, it's describing, John is describing Jesus as the eternal word of God who has always existed. And he starts out by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John is saying that Jesus, before he uh, became incarnate, he was the, the eternal word of God, the Son of God who existed uh, from eternity past, that Jesus has always existed. The Son has always existed. And, and if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and how it begins, it starts off by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John was drawing, he's trying to draw our attention back to Genesis. And in talking about Jesus here, he's communicating the fact that Jesus, before anything existed, the Son of God existed. 
um, which means that he is divine, that Jesus, the one who became incarnate, as we go down to verse 14, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this is an incredible thing that the New Testament writers are are saying, that God himself, the Son, who has always existed, has become flesh, that he's taken on a human nature, stepped into human history, and walked among us, and that it's through him, uh, John variously talks about Jesus as uh, life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. He says that in the first few verses, and that to all who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God, and that we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, Um, and that Jesus fully reveals God in a way that no one ever has. He says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So, just making the first point that the central place of the incarnation in Christianity, John begins his gospel by saying, this Jesus, this man Jesus, is the Word made flesh and who walked among us and who fully reveals the Father, fully reveals God to us. Um, So, from John's perspective, you can't understand the person of Jesus in his ministry apart from understanding that he is the eternal word of God who is who has always existed and through whom everything was created. That's from the Gospel of John. I also wanted to look at something from one of John's other letters. First um, John chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Uh, Here, John says this, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now it is already in the world. Really, the main point to get from that is that any teaching that denies that Jesus was really a human being, that he really took on human nature, is false. And that he wanted the, the early Christians to be aware of this because there was a teaching going around at the time that denied that Jesus was really human and that he just seemed to be human, but he wasn't actually human. And we'll talk about why that really matters. Um, but that's really the main point that John is making in this second passage is that Jesus really was a human being. And any teaching that denies this is mistaken. The third passage that I wanted to look at here was from the book of Philippians, from chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. 
For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I read a little bit more. Um, I actually read verses 2, 5 through 11. But it's making the point there that Jesus uh, existed in the form of God, that he was God himself. But he didn't consider equality with God as something to be um, exploited, but he was willing to empty himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking on the likeness of humanity. So this is what we celebrate at Christmas time that God himself took on the likeness of humanity, that he came a child and assumed such a vulnerable form, such a dependent form, and that this expresses the humility of Jesus. And the whole point that he did this says here that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So at Easter, we celebrate the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but in this chapter from Philippians, you see that th- this was the whole reason that Jesus became a man in the first place. The doctrine of the incarnation, the teaching of the incarnation, points forward to the cross, that the reason Jesus came was so he could make a way for us to be forgiven for our sins against God. So really from these three passages from the Gospel of John, from the letter of 1 John, and now from Philippians, you can see how central the, the, the incarnation is to the Christian faith. The next point that I want to make is that the Christian hope, Christian hope depends on the incarnation. And this is already, I, I think, fairly obvious from the passages that, that we've already looked at. But I want to look at one from the book of Hebrews. Uh, This is from chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. It says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And I think this is just, this offers so much uh, comfort and and hope to us, uh, to all those who trust in what Jesus has done Jesus has taken on flesh and blood so that through his death he might destroy the power that, that the devil has who, who held the power of death and, and freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So a major point of the book of Hebrews is that the author is making the point that Jesus is the perfect high priest that he is the one who is able to intercede on our behalf before God uh, for our sins, and that a key part of what makes him this perfect high priest is that he actually took on a human nature, that he took on flesh and blood like us, walked among us. He experienced suffering. He experienced temptation. 
And like it concludes here, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So in Jesus, he has destroyed the power of sin and death. And he is able to identify with those who who suffer. He's, a, he's able to identify with our sufferings. He's able to identify with our weaknesses. And this is what makes him a perfect and faithful, a, a, a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. So in his incarnation, this is directly connected to Jesus' ability to be our mediator, to be the one who who intercedes for us before God and who, by his death and resurrection, provides atonement for our sins. He's able to understand our sufferings and, and our need for forgiveness. So that's from the book of Hebrews. There's another verse from 1 John chapter 3, which you'll see it expresses something that we just read uh, from Hebrews chapter 2. So 1 John 3, 8 says, uh, The one who commits sin is, a, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. In Christian theology, our, our greatest enemies are sin and death. Sin separates us from God. Death um, death neutralizes all seeming significance and meaning in our lives. It is something that, that people fear. It's something that people dread um, because we don't, we don't want to cease to exist. Um, that's, a, that's a fearful prospect for, I think, the majority of people. So, um, and, and death is a consequence of sin. The, the New Testament is clear about that, that sin entered the world um, and that the wages of sin is death. But, but in Jesus, in his incarnation, in, in his appearing, he destroys the one who holds the power of death. That is the devil. That's what Hebrews just said. And here in 1 John 3, 8, it says the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's works. So Jesus, by becoming a man, God becoming man in this work, he is able to destroy the devil's works. He's able to free people from their sins. He's able to free people from the reality of death and give them eternal life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and everyone who believes in me, who trusts in me, even though he dies, he will live. He makes this, this claim that in him is eternal life, that all those who trust in him have this kind of life and are freed from the power of sin and death. So this is why the Christian hope depends upon the Incarnation. Jesus, in his coming, in God becoming man, has provided a way for for us to be forgiven for our sins against God and to be set free from sin and death. And the third point that I want to make is, is that it's very important to understand the incarnation. We need to understand the, in, the place of the incarnation in Christian theology. We need to understand why Christian hope depends upon the incarnation. So those are the first few things that we've looked at. But the third thing the importance of understanding it, of getting it right. Earlier, we looked at 1 John 4, 2 through 3, which says that, that, that any, any teaching that would deny that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. 
So this means that there are misunderstandings of the incarnation. And if you read throughout uh, the history of the early church, you'll see that there were different teachings about the incarnation that were proposed that people were trying to uh, spread, but that these teachings weren't faithful to the original things that Jesus said about himself. They weren't faithful to the the truths about Jesus that the apostles, that his his earliest followers, those who were with him, who were taught by him, it wasn't faithful to what they were teaching. So there's a standard of truth about uh, who Jesus is and what he taught about himself, and that it's important to get that right, that truth truth matters. Two of these teachings that rejected the uh, reality of the Incarnation, there's a reference in uh, 2 John, verse 7, which says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So here we have, again, John is referring to certain teachings that would deny that Jesus actually was a real human being, that this was something going on when John was writing these letters. So one teaching we've already talked about is that it's the idea that Jesus only seemed to be human, that he was a, quote, supernatural visitant, not God, who seemed human, but was really a kind of phantom, a teacher who did not really die for sins, end quote. That's from a theologian named J.I. Packer. But this was called docetism, and it was just the idea, again, Jesus only seemed to be a human being, but he, he really wasn't. He was just kind of some supernatural visitor. And, and this removed the idea that Jesus could really die for the sins of the world. If he wasn't a real human being, um, then he could not serve as a, a substitute in our place to provide forgiveness for our sins by his death and resurrection. So the idea that Jesus seemed to be human but really wasn't is, is part of these teachings that are against the truth of the Incarnation. Another one would say that Jesus has only one nature, a divine nature. And now this also rejects the full humanity of Jesus. And this was a teaching called monophysitism, said that Jesus only had one nature. Now the incarnation uh, says that Jesus is God incarnate, like we've already said, but this means that he has two natures within one person. You have the one person, Jesus Christ, but he has a human nature, and he also has a divine nature, that he is fully human, but he's also fully God. And so to say that Jesus only has one nature, that is a divine nature, and not a human nature, this is another way that rejects the full humanity of Jesus. And as we'll see, if Jesus was not a real human being, this uh, means that he cannot be uh, our Savior. So Jesus as God incarnate, this means that he has a fully human nature, and a fully divine nature. I like this quote that says, uh, in, in other words, all the qualities and powers that are in us, as well as all the qualities and powers that are in God, were, are, and ever will be really and distinguishably present in the one person of the man from Galilee. That's J.I. Packer again. He's just saying that Everything that would be necessary to be a human, to have a human nature, everything that is necessary to a human nature, Jesus had. 
everything that is necessary to a divine nature, Jesus also had. In the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it, it says that all the fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus bodily. So that, that clearly communicates, along with the other passages that we read, that Jesus was God. Um, as we saw from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, um, it says Jesus was made like us, that he had that he took on flesh like us so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest and, and could be a one who could intercede for us before before God to make atonement for our sins. So Jesus as God incarnate, this means that he has two natures, that he's one person, the person of Jesus Christ, two natures, a human nature, and a divine nature. He was fully human and also fully divine. And I think it's interesting when you start reflecting on the New Testament writers were, were monotheistic Jews, meaning that they believed in one God. And so the idea that they would teach that uh, there, there's such a thing as the God-man, Jesus Christ, that a human being could also be called God, is very strange. That This is not something at all that you would expect monotheistic Jews to make up or to proclaim. This really, in, in a large sense, was not something that was even on their, their radar. It wasn't something they were expecting. This is not the kind of Messiah they were expecting, a God-man. And yet, here they are on all the pages of the New Testament teaching that Jesus is God incarnate. Just something to consider. If the writers of the New Testament were making this up, it's very odd that they would pick something that would be so counter to everything that they've been taught, something that would not be widely accepted at all. It would be very difficult to get people to believe something like this unless it was actually true. So strange they would make something like this up if it wasn't true. Another point to get is that unless Jesus was truly human and truly divine, he could not take our sins upon himself and make atonement for us in his death and resurrection. Jesus um, was tempted in every way that we have been tempted and suffer in this fallen world. And in this way, he is the perfect high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. As a human being, he has lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live on our own. To be in God's presence requires perfection. None of us are perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God, uh, like we read in the book of Romans, and that Jesus lived the perfect life. He fulfilled that requirement of holiness and perfection that we never could. He was perfect, sinless in thought, word, and deed, perfectly fulfilled the will of his Father. And in this way has made a way for, for us to be forgiven, that he lived that perfect life as a human being. He died in our place, taking upon himself all the wrath that we deserve for our sins. And as, as the Son of God, fully divine, fully human, he's able to accomplish this. And unless he was a real human being, he could not have uh, stood in our place, taking our punishment upon himself. Unless he was God, he could not have taken all the sins of the world upon himself and offered a sufficient sacrifice. So, in a nutshell, that's why 
the incarnation is so important. Unless Jesus was really God and really human, he could not be the Savior of the world that the New Testament talks about. So our lives and eternities are secure in his grace as our perfect high priest. And that's something to celebrate. That's, that's what the hope of Christmas is, that we have a Savior who is sufficient, who, who offers forgiveness, who offers reconciliation with God, who can wash all your sins away. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who is the perfect sacrifice, and who by his death and resurrection has destroyed the power of Satan. He's destroyed sin and death, our greatest enemies. That is the hope of Christmas. And so Christmas is a wonderful time for Christians to reflect on this. And it's also a wonderful time for non-Christians to consider the claims of Jesus. So many Christmas carols are sung this time of year, uh, particularly Heart the Herald, Angels Sing, that, that Jesus, that he was born, that man no more may die, that he was born to give us second birth. I mean, these are all truths of the Incarnation truths about the hope that is found in Christ. Um, so I hope I hope the hope of Christmas, the the central truth of the incarnation is something that if you're a Christian that you'll celebrate, that you'll focus on. And if you're a non-Christian, I hope it's something that you'll consider more seriously um, and realize that there is no other hope like the hope to be found in Jesus. As 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 Peter said during a time of Jesus' ministry when many people walked away from him, Jesus turned to Peter and to the other, kind of the core group of disciples, and Jesus said, do you want to leave me as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so that's my, that, that's my prayer for you today. Um, if you're a Christian, that you'll celebrate this hope that's to be found in Christ. If you're a non-Christian, that you'll consider it and that you'll, you'll read about Jesus for yourself in, in the Gospels. Now, one last thing that I wanted to discuss briefly before we close out the episode is a question that may have arisen in your mind as I've been talking about the Incarnation. A major point about the Incarnation that I've made that we saw from uh, the book of Hebrews is that Jesus, as God incarnate, has been tempted uh, in every way that we have been tempted, yet he is without sin. And that this forms a significant part of how Jesus can identify with us in our sufferings and how even though he was tempted, he did not sin. He fulfilled the perfect law of God on our behalf so that we can be righteous before God on account of Jesus, by trusting in him. But the New Testament also seems to say that God can't be tempted. Uh, That's all over the Bible, that there is no evil in God, and that he can't be tempted by evil, that God can't sin. So how is it that Jesus could be tempted if he was God incarnate? Doesn't this raise a problem for the doctrine of the incarnation? And I think it's a really good question. Um, It's one that has been of course, talked about at length in many places, and I think there's um, a good way to think through it. I also think this is something, some of these issues in Christian theology, the Bible doesn't make explicitly clear how it worked, whatever issue that you're referring to. It doesn't necessarily give all the details that you might want to understand, uh, to understand a question that you might have. 
And I think this is a little bit how it is when we're thinking about how Jesus could be tempted and yet not sin. But I still think there's a way that we can think through this. So the first uh, step in this is to go back to what the incarnation is. This means Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. He is one person with two natures. And so when he's tempted, he is tempted in his human nature. God cannot be tempted by evil. God cannot sin. But Jesus could be tempted in his human nature. Um, So to be tempted in his human nature, it means that he is presented with scenarios where he has alternative courses of action that he could take. So when we're tempted as human beings, we have a a choice or maybe various choices that we can make as to how we're going to act, how we're going to respond to this temptation. Are we going to give into it and take that course of action, or are we going to resist and take another course of action? So this is what Jesus experienced. When he was tempted, he is just being presented with alternative courses of action that he could take. So if you think about the Gospels describe his temptation by Satan, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he's given a series of temptations. One is where Satan says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and he's hungry. Satan says, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Um, and, and there's other temptations that are offered as well, like to to worship Satan. And if Jesus worships Satan, he will be given all the kingdoms of the world. Another is that he would jump off the 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 pinnacle of the temple, so and 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 that angels will be sent to catch him. And so these are all very specific temptations with very specific purposes. But the point here is just to get that Jesus is presented with courses of action that he could take. Now, these are sinful courses of action for various reasons, and you'll have to go uh, to those places in the Gospels to read about the temptation of Jesus to get more detail with that. But he's presented with courses of action that are sinful. But the way that he responds to those temptations is that he resists, and he responds by quoting Scripture to Satan in these instances. So, The temptation consists in Jesus being presented with courses of action that he could take. Now, Jesus has a perfect will because he has a divine nature so that he always chooses the right course of action. Now, when we are tempted, when Christians are tempted, we don't always choose the right thing because we still have corrupt wills as human beings. We're still living in these these sinful bodies. And so we don't always make the right choice because we are still drawn to evil. We're still drawn to make those wrong choices and to go against God. But but Jesus never was because he has a perfect will, because he has a divine nature. So he always chooses the right thing. And I think this is just a way, when you properly understand the incarnation, that Jesus has a human nature, he's fully human. He also has a divine nature, he's fully God. And so when we think about his temptation, the difference here between him and us is that he is not drawn to that which is evil, and he always makes the right choice um, that is pleasing to God. But he is really tempted in his human nature, being presented with these courses of action that he could take to deviate from the will of his Father. 
So genuine temptation doesn't require that you desire and succumb to the wrong decision. It just requires that you are presented with alternative courses of action that you could take. So um, I, I, I think that's a way to answer this question. Um, can God really be tempted? If Jesus was God incarnate, could he really be tempted? I think the answer is yes. And when you read the New Testament, it, it teaches those things very clearly. Jesus was God incarnate, yet he was also tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. And so I think that's a possible way that you could work through that question. Okay, well, that is it for today's episode. Again, I, I really hope that you will reflect upon the truth of the Incarnation, what it means, the hope that it offers. This year has been so difficult in, in so many ways for pretty much everybody uh, have been affected by the difficulties of this year. And people are looking for real hope. I just want to say that that, that substantive real hope is found in the, the truth that God has not left this world without hope, that he stepped into it, he has experienced suffering, and he has overcome sin, and he's overcome death, so that all those who trust in Jesus can have eternal life, can know God, can be made new. That's the gospel. That's the message of Jesus, and I hope that you'll open the New Testament for yourself and, and read about this further. I do have an email for question submittals. I thought it might be uh, a good idea to have an email address that if you listen to this podcast and you like it, maybe there's a question that you've thought about that you have never heard an answer to, or you would just like me to to discuss it on the podcast. You can send those questions to uh, this email address, basically just the name of the podcast, Reasoned Hope Podcast at gmail.com. So that's all one word, reasonedhopepodcast at gmail.com. Um, if you have any any questions or anything that you want me to discuss on the podcast, please feel free to email me, and I'll be happy to, uh, to discuss the things that you are interested in hearing about. Thank you so much for joining me today, and remember that there are reasons for hope in Jesus. Jesus.